I say that when crime's been going up nine times as fast as population, I say to you, my friends, when we find, as we look over America, that 43% of all the American people indicated in a poll that they're afraid to walk on the streets of their cities at night, then, my friends, it's not time for more of the same. It's not time for the same men. It's time for a complete house cleaning and new leadership from top to bottom to reestablish respectful law. Welcome to Wiseman Podcast, Episode 3 on Law and Order, the 1968 film from Frederick Wiseman, following his six-week period in Kansas City, following the police department. I am Sean Glennis, one of your co-hosts, an occasional film writer living in Detroit, and I am here with my other co-host, Arlen Golden, occasional Hello. film writer, and... Uh, Documentary, documentarian, I guess. Um, I guess. Well, hopefully all of our listeners checked out your documentary. Oh, uh, checks. This Thanks. past month on Prismatic Grounds. Um, yeah, it was great. Uh, so, how are you doing? Well, I mean, hey, it's the second time we've gotten a Zoom today, so um, it's occasion for just a wonderful day. yeah um yeah this episode is is a little bit different from the first two in that uh we still have this bifurcated structure you got us up front and then we talk with uh, our guest but instead of doing a uh, an interview type of structure for the second part um we had on uh, nalita vashani um for a discussion just a three-way discussion um, Nalita is a uh, writer and documentary filmmaker and also a uh, film teacher um, at the Tisch, at Tisch School of Arts um, in New York. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that that's kind of maybe where we were uh, hoping to take this podcast going forward is just kind of like folding in um, uh, conversations. Um, yeah, it's and, a good one. Yeah. Um, but happy to have the opportunity to sort of situate people a little further for that conversation and um, discuss some stuff uh, that, that we might have alighted over. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think there's, there's still a lot to cover. Um, you know, it's a really interesting film formally um, for a few reasons. Um, we were discussing this is first collaboration uh, with cinematographer William Brain, um, who I think is a, another Canuck, came down south to work with Fred. Um, he uh, was a collaborator with um, Alan King on Warrendale. Uh, Alan King, who um, uh, member, member brought up last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a pretty historic run uh, for Brain and uh, Weissman, starting here at Law and & Order and going all the way through Canal Zone, um, sort of comprising some of the most iconic of uh, the first decade of, of Weissman works. Um, was there sort of noticeable um Mm -hmm. visual differences for you i mean aside obviously we don't have that uh zoom lens uh experimentation going on anymore 
I mean, yeah, that's pretty startling, just the, the lack of that. You still get Zooms, right? Like, there are still some Zooms. Sure, sure. sure. But, but it's less playful, um, and it's more just kind of, like, feels like on the run and, and just trying to, like, grab what's what's in front of them rather than playing around in the space that they're in, like, like uh, what's happening in the previous two films. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, other than that... I guess I, I don't know if I if I really noticed anything other than a lack of of uh, that sort of playfulness, but mm-hmm. I I like it. I, I like it's it's a nice change because you know as I said I, I appreciate what high school is, but that yeah. is not the Wiseman zone that I that I go to, you know. And right. so this is getting a bit into that, and we talk more with with Nalita uh, just the further developments of Wiseman in this. Like I, I think it's a big step forward um for him but what do you think yeah it's definitely sort of gets more into that i guess wiseman feel whatever that might be um you know like you said there's still some zooms um but it's more restrained i feel like um there's more uh confidence or just you know he's more okay just just holding the shot and you know he's not a tripod but but he's more comfortable just kind of keeping the frame keeping the subjects in the frame and and just you know letting the scene play out being Um, less visible yeah right right there's um there's a scene that that did remind me of high school that did have some of these sort of um like zoom accents um that we didn't talk about that's um early on in the film where an officer is citing i think i think he's a drunk driver he seems kind of drunk um but it's like a dude um just up against his trunk of the car and pretty much the whole interaction the the cop has this dude by the collar mm-hmm. yeah and just like just kind of flinging him around while he just talks down to him um has a great one of my favorite lines in the film is like he's asking him what his eye color is you remember that mm-hmm. um I'll play the clip. You know something? Why don't you just poke me? That's what I'm trying to do, Roy. But you ain't got no fucking guts. Well, I'm five eight and a half. Next time you, you open your big fat mouth, I'm gonna step in it. Yeah, that's your you own understand? business. That's your own business. You got one you, more. But you, 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 uh, uh, one of these days, boy, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna believe it. One more of those. One of these goddamn. All right. Do as you want. How tall are you? Five foot eight and a half. Keep your hand on my shirt. How much do you weigh? Hell, I don't know. How much do you weigh, Ross? I'm thinking about uh, going to jail. Do you want... Why in the hell don't you put me in jail and forget about Come it? On. How much do you weigh? I want. I don't want none, none, no more of this bullshit. How much do you weigh? I'm so big. I'm get tired of this noise. I see your eyes. They blue? No, hell no. Hey. Um, but there there's there's some moments in there where the um, brain zooms in on the Mm -hmm. hand on the collar and his hand on his hand you know it's this really tense moment that that feels like could escalate to violence pretty quickly and and may have if um brain and wiseman weren't on the scene you know who knows yeah it's interesting like uh to think about the um 
the Benson article that we talked about last week with high school and how much that focused on mise-en-scene and like specifically those zoom-ins and what what those focuses can mean to the viewer like mm-hmm. uh and, and and it's interesting that you it would it would probably be harder to write something like that for for law and order or like it doesn't invite itself as much and it was interesting listening to Nalita and also reading um, an article that she wrote last October for Film International on on Law and Order about language and that being more of like a specific focus here like th- that kind of like close study on dialogue and language and vernacular seems to be um where you can really sink your teeth into here yeah yeah i mean it, it is much more of like uh i guess kind of like a semiotic uh text in that way um there there are some interesting things this just came to me this the scene with the missing purse mm-hmm. um I wonder if you caught this or, or if this made this impression on you, but they start, when they find the purse, there's the shot of the purse. It's almost like it was set up, like they found it, and then they're like, all right, you go over there, you're going to enter the frame, kind of, <laughs> and pick up the purse. And, you know, I, I wonder if just kind of six weeks of ride-along, there may have been a bit of, like, back-and-forth collaboration in that Uh-oh. sense, you know what I mean? Hmm. Like, yeah. Uh, did did you catch anything like that? No, I mean I didn't think about that. That's interesting though. But um, I, I that reminded me of something else that I think we kind of touched on. But I kind of wanted to ask you more about um, like that when we see her get this person, it's empty, and then you, and then there's a cut, and mm-hmm. and the last thing that I remember hearing is her just being like where are my keys? I don't have my keys. Like, right. how, like, yeah. what am I going to do? And there's like that cut that feels so empty. That feels like soul, so like soul sucking that like, that seems to be like sort of a, um, a recurring yeah, thing so throughout. Good. Yeah. It's just like between that, between the Bagsby lady, like the cut with her talking about like, um, uh, why do you live like this? Um, and then you also have just like this ch- this crying child, like, like, yes, this cop is trying to help this this child, but at the end of the day, like, it does seem really. Did it seem to you like it's very limited in like we we're not going? Oh, they're great with kids. Like, this, <laughs> like it doesn't seem like a great solution, right? Yeah, I want. I was wondering about that. I noticed like like what division of the department he's in because the guy, the corn cob pipe guy who who's <laughs> escorting this child, he's got like a cross on his yeah. uh, sleeve. It's like maybe he's some kind of humanitarian wing. In which case, like, why aren't you a little better at this? Mm-hmm. Um, but but I mean, it did seem like this happens enough that there's a crib back at the police station for yeah. whatever reason. Right. So they, they put her in the crib. Um, but it is just like woefully inept feeling. And, um, I guess this can lead us into, um, the interview you sent, uh, uh, done around the time of city hall, which was also city hall's release, which was also, um, in the midst of the summer of, 2020 with all of the protests around the murder of George Floyd. Um, 
and you know the interviewer very understandably asks Weissman you know kind of his take um, on the whole scene and and the defund uh, the police movement um, abolition and all that given yeah had you read this this. I hadn't read this uh, prior to you sending it to me no but but um, you know Weissman says he's not he's he's clearly not on board with you know defund um in explicit terms even though the sentiment he expresses pretty much is, <laughs> yes it's the same i think he he doesn't yeah. like the slogan right right like, yeah. i'm sure he probably also wouldn't like the slogan of a cap either <laughs> yeah. um definitely not yeah. which is fair and also kind of like makes me it made me excited to like watch like revisit this and also like to talk about it with you is that like this, yeah, like, this isn't just, like, even though he went to Kansas City with the idea of making this specific film, uh, that he found out that there, that there isn't much profit in doing that. Um, and it was, it was refreshing to see something that isn't just, like, relaying to you what you want to hear, right? I mean... Well, it's 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 the thing that you know the the principal of high school thought it was a good film, right? Or the the um, some of the um, state people that yeah, yeah. thought Titty Cut Follies was uh, before it came out. I think it's it's a similar thing here, where you know it, we keep saying it. You're you're bringing all your own assumptions to it. So to me, pretty much everything in this movie reinforce the assumptions I came in with as far as you know the the police are tasked with way too much um, just as far as like public interaction civic services and um, you know that's played out you know in multiple ways throughout the film not the least of which is this missing girl scene but it's um, and where we do sort of expect the police's help um, you know, in matters of like theft or, or violence or something, you know, the best they're able to, they can't stop crime. They can't prevent crime. They can mm-hmm. really only respond to the aftermath. And yeah, and, until we have precogs, we can't stop. <laughs> right. So, I mean, like, like just the whole concept and venture of policing to me in law and order is really laid bare and it's just woeful inadequacy which is interesting because like so you can see uh, all of these uh situations where they are uh inept and like i i came away with it also a lot of times they're just uninterested unempathetic Mm -hmm. um but regardless like a lot of situations that they're not able to solve and i think the film gives you space to read into that um either like they should be able to solve this or this is the state's fault or um or you can say like man that sucks like that like i feel for this cop who doesn't have a an option right like there is a space there in because it's a wiseman film for you to feel that way if you're inclined to I think. yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously obviously the answer like yeah. that i think i would come to it is you don't have to be a cop <laughs> like right yeah yeah well i think the thing the thing in the interview that weissman suggests is like you know if if defund the police means you know sending out 
um, like mental health uh, specialists yeah, social or, workers. or social workers or, you know, some other department, then, yeah, he's for that. And I'm like, well, yeah, that, that is what it means, you know. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, I think he's, he says, you know, send them along with the police officer as opposed to instead of. Um, but, you know, the sentiment is pretty similar. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that's something we haven't brought up yet is this quote um, from Weissman about his politics being more <laughs> along the lines of um, Groucho Marx. He said they're Marxist. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. More, Marxist, more, just more, yeah. More Groucho than Karl. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's something we're going to wrestle with throughout this because his films are, you know, all over, pretty overtly political and, and it not so much in his uh, presentation of them, but just in, in the subject matter of themselves, you know, politics politics and politicians shape these institutions yeah and you also have to wrestle with uh, like especially when you're in when like you and i and you're just reading a a ton of his own like interviews and whatnot and citations like you you have to wrestle with what he's saying and what is his personality versus what his films actually do because he is sort of like a no bullshit kind of guy and i don't think he really like, I don't think he likes to, like, pigeonhole himself as a certain type of filmmaker. Like, he right. just says, I make movies that I want to make. And It's pretty uh, relentless about talking about his films like that. Yeah, which is interesting because he loves talking about his movies, it seems. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't want to, yeah, like, he doesn't like to say, like, he, he doesn't want to prescribe his, his films um, and to call them Marxist even though there are plenty of like Marxist readings of, of, of Wiseman movies. Uh, I don't, and I, I don't blame him as a filmmaker. Like, why would you want right. to, to, why would you want to have people come into a film going like, Ooh, this Marxist film. Right. Like, <laughs> it's, that's not fun. I don't think, but, um, but yeah, I, I, it, it's interesting to sort of balance that. And I'm glad, I'm glad that he, is the person that he is it makes it fun well i mean this is i guess back you know we talked to nalita about this as we talked to steven um and carolyn is is the idea of purity in weissman's film work and like i think that that this is kind of coupled with that where you know he's he is claiming to and resist claiming to resist and i think his films generally do resist ideology um yet you know they do ostensibly show the world as it is you know um mm-hmm. um or, or he would never say that he would say it shows what he saw while he was there pretty much you know he says he's he's faithfully um um representing you know his experience in this case six weeks riding along with, with the police department but but you know for practical purposes it's it's showing the world as it is. It's showing these institutions mm-hmm. as they are. And so then whether or not you're cl- inclined to see fault or not with these presentations will depend largely on, you know, the politics you've already developed. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, you know, I think in in all the readings about this film so far, it's... It, it does seem like generally people do get the impression that there are some good cops and that the police do do some good things Mm -hmm. um where you know uh, 
I, I wouldn't argue too much against that, but I would, I would say that at their best in law and order, they seem, you know, uh, neutral I think. yeah <laughs> you know? i mean if you ride around with like if yeah. any any joe schmo rides around with cops for six weeks you're gonna see some cops do some perfectly fine humane things right um but that is certainly not the the feeling that uh you come away with it's interesting um uh because uh someone someone i know uh showed this film to a class and said that that their students came away thinking that uh cops are good or at least that that's the feeling that, <laughs> that they got that. and it's and it, it's just such a, a weird i don't it, but like you said it's it's about values um, well i, that you bring. I think it's it's too i think that that was a college class right yeah so it's like you know it's in i think i would imagine college students these days are kind of primed to be looking for you know like qualities of propaganda or uh, things that might uh, counter what we've all come to understand about police through viral videos and, uh, you know, recent events and all that. Um, so that any presentation that's not, like, explicitly damning, you know, they might read as being uh, mm-hmm. in favor of, um, which is, you know, not the best, most nuanced way to read a film. But... Um, yeah. I, I can I can understand that, but but I, you know, I don't think anyone would can really look at this and say it's pro cop. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> um, unless unless you're just like a sadist, you know. Um, but are, are you so, sadist, Sean? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm also pro cop just generally. But um, <laughs> so where where do you see like where does this fall for you? Uh, just as a fan of, of Wiseman. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, it's canonical, I think. It's it's important, but, like, I think the thing that I'm always measuring against movies, when I'm, when I'm thinking about, like, rating a film or reviewing a film, is measuring kind of, like, the objective, uh, quote-unquote, like, like, you know, merits and quality of it against, like, how much I enjoy watching mm-hmm. it. And this is one I really don't enjoy, like, watching, but I've still recognized that it's, like, very, very good. Mm-hmm. But it's just, like, um, routinely unpleasant, you know? There's a lot of, like, just, like, n- negativity and and horror occurring mm-hmm. on, on screen. And it, it's, it's, it's a tough watch, you know? Yeah, it is. Um, that reminds me of one of the things I was thinking of, and I don't know how articulate this is, but just a feeling that I got is and uh, just how much you appreciate it as a cinema verite text. It really does feel like it feels so modern and like, like, wow, he ca- like captured this, like he found like lightning in a bottle basically, or what feels like that, like for that time, like, how did he get there and and how did he think to do this and i I don't know it just feels like so foundational as like this raw piece of like footage or many raw pieces of footage just like spliced together that's just like laid bare without like this didactic narration or voiceover or anything like that like it it so yeah i think i think i view it as as more of like just like a canonical important film than 
one of my favorite Wiseman films. I think it's really good. But, yeah. Um, and and I think it's just I, th- I think it would be the one of these first three that I would show if, like if I was picking yeah. one of the first three as like one of the like important Wiseman early films. I think that this is the one that that I would maybe because it doesn't have all those zooms and whatnot. Um, yeah. I, I didn't even think about that while watching it, but I think maybe I internalized like uh, that this is just kind of a bit more basic presentation and and whatnot. But also just some of the stuff like that he captures is is um, uh unfortunate but uh but it's important that he was there and able to to um put it to film i mean i think there's there's a a sort of dark humor about it at at certain times you know um kind of like if you're um just living in this world day by day like um how could you not sort of develop like I guess as a shield or self-defense right like just like some kind of detachment from it and you know um I guess the most sympathy I would give police officers is that like the 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 way the job is is set up is to put you in contact with like you know the worst symptoms of um just like an under-resourced society and under-resourced communities so that you know you have a sense that everything is bad and that you know how can that not uh affect your character and outlook and behavior um Mm -hmm. to just exist in that world uh nine to five or you know obviously they have odd hours but you know (laughs) what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's um uh it's interesting to think about like um one of the one of the quotes that Wiseman was saying in in one of the many interviews one of like the more contemporaneous interviews was about when when he was talking about how like he he was immediately putting like police brutality in the context of human brutality and like you see you see um police uh asked to um exercise more control than they have um, right. which is not an excuse but like it is it's interesting to think about like because i mean even even like this last weekend there was like a bunch of cops uh trying to break up just like a big hang on the street outside my house yeah. and uh, um and you see like a uh, vocal fight between like a, a citizen and a cop and you just see like cops shouldn't be Right. fighting with, with like this shouldn't be something that's happening but yeah, uh, it's, it's just not, a part of the fabric yeah it's not it's not an excuse but it is an inevitable reality of just yeah. like tasking people to do this like it's it's not a job anyone should do you know and then and then you mix it with like so in law and order we see these these scenes uh that we talk about with Nalita but um yeah. of cops talking at windows and it's like camaraderie and it's right, right. and it just breeds so quickly like you just right. you just know that it, it 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 becomes like a way that they survive or it, it just becomes their existence well it's interesting too there's one scene um between i guess a detective and uh someone they picked up who's kind of berating them because he's a vietnam vet and he just got home and the detective or the copper whoever is uh, a vet of you know korea i think it was mm-hmm. um I, I tell you a soldier coming here and report an incident and you act like you don't want to do anything about it you won't even send a man out to see about it 
when a man's supposed to have a 38 and you won't even see about it. Now, 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 what, what the soldier doing fighting over in Vietnam, fighting for you? Won't you go in Vietnam Look, and fight for it? I was in Vietnam, I was in Korea before you was ever out of diapers. Now, don't pull that soldier stuff on me. You understand? Well, won't you I go back six over there? years in the Marine Corps, and you ain't been... I got more time in the pay line than you got in child life. Well, well, now, well, shut up. And, and, you know, so there's, there's A, this stark contrast between uh, the Vietnam vets, a black vet um, and the cop is white so there's there's this difference in the ways that veterans came home between those two wars there's the racial differences but um, what's implied and and we know to be true to this day is that there's like a military to police pipeline pretty much yeah um, and that um, you know it's just an entirely different set of like skills and and um ways of being you know to engage in like a foreign war and to be like a community officer like like the to to just you know i'm I'm sure there's some training and like attempts at reprogramming but like you know as we'll see in basic training you know it's kind of a totalizing ideology and mindset and and I it's no surprise then that some a sentiment you see among so many officers when discussing the jurisdictions they police is is one similar to like uh, enemy combatants or insurgents you know mm-hmm. yeah for sure <sighs> yeah I, th- I think um <sighs> yeah I don't, I don't know how much <laughs> how much else I, I have to add, especially since we go through a lot of it with Nalita, but I, I think I just came away re- forgetting like some of the just ultimately depressing stuff that you see in this film, like that that yeah. sits between the margins. Um, you know, like obviously there's like the horrifying stuff, yeah. but he captures so many little things, and sometimes it is just those like breakaways. Um, yeah, I Those mean, there's cuts. really, there's re- everything is tinged with sadness. Like even the, the purse thing, like you said, the money's gone. There's no keys. You know, the the little girl that they pick up, you know, she goes to the station in the crib. But then what? You know, what became of, of her? Um, I'd be really interested to learn that. And like, you know, there's, um, God, the scene where with the one woman that. She, got a head injury and she's just kind of like screaming bloody murder out on the street and she's oh, really yeah. scared you know yeah yeah and like um you know so they're helping her they're they're bringing her an ambulance but at the same time it's just this kind of horrific scene of like screaming and so yeah i mean like like and, and not to say like titty cut follies is fun um but high school is kind of fun and, and Titty Cut Follies has this sort of novel quality about it, but I think Law & Order is just so real, and it's so in our own lived experience. You know, I think I think similar to the difference between high school and Titty Cut Follies, and like everyone's been to high school, everyone's had some manner of interaction with a cop, you know, even if it was like, uh, I don't know, like if D.A.R.E. officers came to your school when you were a kid, mm-hmm, but like... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've had a few interactions I would care not to have had, um, but like, like, so, so it's, I think we all go around with this sense that like, for whatever reason, a cop could come up and start 
harassing us at any time and you know there's you just kind of have to feel well, that I think, out i think the other difference between this and the previous two films is that uh titicut follies feels like a dispatch from a specific time that feels archaic right like yeah that that is not how those places exist anymore and high school also feels dated like right high schools are different now um, even though I'm sure a lot of it speaks still thematically, but like this isn't different. <laughs> yeah, that's really well put, I think. Like, cause just like the overarching institutions of like mental health and education have developed and, you know, there, there are lots of people thinking around those issues and instituting changes and, I, uh, I think, yeah, we could say both of those have improved significantly since the late 60s. But as we talked to Nalita, it just seems like this could have been shot, you know, any any time uh, in, in the past 50 years. You know, the, the, the title itself, Law and Order, I remember when tr- Trump just tweeted that out. Just the word, <laughs> yeah. Law and Order, you know, all, all caps. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, I think we, we had some good jokes on Twitter about uh, yeah, Weissman, Weissman films <laughs> yeah, when that happened. But, um, yeah, it's just um, painfully uh, modern and relevant and contemporary. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, um, uh, you can reach us at wisemanpodcast at gmail.com. We would go through some of them now, but they're just coming in so quickly, it's hard to really <laughs> go through them. Sure. I need to like set aside some time and, and really go through all of your <clears throat> emails. Um, but regardless, you should send in emails, um, ask questions, blah, blah, blah. Um, but other than that, uh, yeah. I hope you enjoy our chat with Nalita. And um, thanks for listening. Yeah, and send me that coconut rice recipe. Thank you. Uh Thank you. I'm afraid your money's gone, though. It's gone. And, uh, and it took my key. 2335 uh, And the and it took my key. 2335 uh, I figured that. He took my key to the house. My door key. Got your door key. Got my door key. Got my pocket book. Billfold. Yes, my billfold. You've got the pocket book. Oh, I ain't that a kill. Welcome back to the Wiseman Podcast. I am Sean Glennis, one of your co-hosts, alongside Arlen Golden. How are you doing, Arlen? Morning. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, doing doing my best and. Pacific time zone, um, but happy to make accommodations um, so we can have this great guest today. Yeah, so uh, this uh, this week we have uh, a guest to talk about Law & Order, Wiseman's third film from 1968. Uh, our guest is Nalita Fashani. Um, Nalita is a documentary filmmaker writer of fiction and nonfiction, and also teaches documentary at the Tisch School of Arts at NYU. How are you doing, Nalita? I'm doing pretty well. 
it's my first podcast ever so that's pretty exciting oh wow i mean i've heard a lot of them but i don't really <laughs> <have> any <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, we're, we're honored to have you. Um, so you're working on a book about Wiseman now, is that correct? Yes. And you so have I've been teaching Wiseman's films for the last 12 years. And uh, so I feel like I know some of his films backwards. Mm -hmm. And then it just occurred to me last year that I should just be writing this book. And so <laughs> I'm doing it. What is the scope of like when you're when you say you're you you've been teaching for twelve years like what does that look like Are you teaching like like seminars on him or does he just come into your curriculum? Yeah, so um, I teach uh, documentary filmmaking and also documentary theory and criticism, and I teach both in the U.S. and I teach in India. And uh, ever since you know I saw my first Wiseman film, and uh, realized that you know he was the real deal. I mean, there was no other documentary filmmaker quite like him. <laughs> and I have learned so much from his work um, that I couldn't imagine teaching a documentary class without including a Wiseman film. So, yeah, I just include him in every curriculum possible, <laughs> you know. And usually I find, I mean, it's incredible, but uh, students... Uh, even though uh, those who have been studying the documentary for a while very often have never heard of him. Mm -hmm. So it is just the most magical thing in the classroom to share a Wiseman film for the first time mm -hmm. and yeah. just see their minds literally opening and blowing out in front of me. So it's just always an amazing experience. Huh. You know, so so something we've already been um, kind of wrestling with these first couple episodes um, is... The concept of like purity in documentary and, and the purity of cinema verite and specifically Wiseman's uh, particular brand of direct cinema. Um, do you think that that's you know a, a useful um, way to to think about uh, Wiseman's work? Yeah, you know, in fact, I hate that. But every time I think of Wiseman, the word pure comes to mind. Yeah. And I hate it because I know Wiseman would just like snicker <laughs> right, you know, right. at that whole concept, right? Because he again and again and again describes his films as condensed, compressed, biased, prejudiced. And I think he's a little hard on himself because I honestly, yes, condensed, compressed, biased. Of course, all documentaries are, aren't they? But right. uh, I don't think they're really prejudiced. Um, uh, and I think uh, they're about as pure a form as can exist. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm amazed, you know, every time I really look at one of his films and I study it very, very deeply and I sort of get fixated on one scene, then I really start looking at it and it's always the word purity that comes in mind, purity of methodology. So, so yes, I couldn't agree more with that choice of word. What was, uh, you mentioned like, the first time you saw a Wiseman film, what was your introduction and how did you, how did you come to see it? So I was a grad student at uh, UPenn um, and the Annenberg School of Communications. And uh, somewhere on campus, they had, all, you know, they had, uh, they showed fiction and nonfiction films. And I remember in the same week, my mind being completely blown by a Fellini film and a Wiseman film. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was somebody straight from India. You know, I had seen no cinema at all mm. other than 
you know, old romantic Hindi films and some dreadful documentaries that the films division in India, in India produced. So I go there and I mean, my God, I, I just remember I used to just go for these screenings and just, you know, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But I, I, I think what turned me into a filmmaker was Fellini and Wiseman, you know, hmm. in, in equal measure. Actually, I saw those films and then I realized what I wanted to do. And I had wanted to be a journalist and a writer. And then I just suddenly, you know, felt I wanted to be a filmmaker. <laughs> so the first film I saw, the first Wiseman film I saw was Titicut Follies. And so, of course, that, uh, that has a very, very special place in, in me, in my heart. And I teach it very, very often uh, as, as an introduction to Wiseman, actually. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, and we had you, we wanted to have you on because uh, you specifically wrote um, an article last October about law and order and relating it to the Black Lives Matter movement uh, following the George Floyd related protests, uh, which we can get into uh, later. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so um, law and order specifically, this is a, uh, a film that he, he shot in a six week period in Kansas City. Um, and it's interesting that we are talking about this purity, this this idea of what we think purity is in cinema verite or, or documentary filmmaking, because um, he uh, he said he decided to make this film after going to the, the DNC in 1968 in Chicago and um, like wanting to expose like the, the police as pigs. Um, and it's really interesting because like that that's not an interesting idea, right? Like that's, that's just creating propaganda and not pure. Um, and that's not what law and order comes out to be. It's not, it, it doesn't feel to me at least as propaganda. So it, it, it's interesting to think about law and order as an important part of his, his growth as, a, as just a, a less didactic filmmaker, like discovering through process that, oh wait, this isn't like, you're, you're not gonna, it's not going to be a fruitful thing to, to go in with these preconceived ideas, which um, he has, uh, you know, just increasingly shed from him. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, because I think his most didactic film, if you can call it that, I mean, I think didactic is just too strong for Wiseman, no matter what, but his, his most, um, uh, you know, Film where he's sort of saying th something in not necessarily a subtle way is Titicut Follies because of his use of parallel editing, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, and in uh, high school also, he sort of sometimes makes fun of some of the teachers, perhaps in an uncharitable way, <laughs> but I'm not even so sure it's Wiseman. I, I think it's his cinematographer, really. Um, but in Law and Order, there's absolutely none of that. You know, there's just none of that. So as Wiseman says, is that with every film, he learns a lot about the world, um, you know, and the world teaches him with every film. So I, th I think one sees that in his work, mm -hmm. um, absolutely. So th yeah, there's no, I mean, I honestly, uh, I was surprised when I actually found that quote by Wiseman where he says, my first instinct was to do in the pigs. <laughs> because I hadn't seen that quote and, and I'd, I'd worked with the film very closely and I really I didn't feel that he was trying to do in the pigs. You know, even in that really horrible scene where the cops are choking that black prostitute, the sex worker, um, he's showing brutality, yes. 
but I, I never felt he was trying to, you know, do in anybody. So that mm -hmm. quote was sort of interesting for me. So I said, oh, well, so he did go in with a certain bias, with, rather with a very strong emotion, let's say, to the cops, given what was happening in, in 1968. But obviously, while he was making the shoot, while he was shooting, he realized that everything was far more nuanced and complicated and the, there were many more gray zones than they were black and white. So that's very interesting, you know, just as a documentary filmmaker and for young documentary filmmakers to, I always tell them, you know, by giving the Wiseman example is um, never feel you know something about a situation when you go into shoot. You know, mm -hmm. you have to go as, with a blank slate. Mm -hmm. And I think all the direct cinema filmmakers in some way or the other said that. I mean, the, the Maisel said it too, right? Al, Al famously said, if I, if I knew what I wanted my film to be about, why would I bother making it? So I, I think that sense of approaching a subject with full curiosity without a preconceived notion is really important for any documentary filmmaker. Yeah, it, it reminds me of something I, I read. Uh, I can't remember it exactly, but uh, this morning he said something like, um, this was in a 1970 film quarterly interview. He said like, if you're going to make a film about humans, it can't just be like this one-sided thing because humans aren't that, humans aren't one-sided. Uh, but he said that he found out like riding around with cops after like 20 seconds that you realize that uh, it's just not what you think it is. And he has said that, um, thinking about police, it, it got him to think about police brutality in a wider context of, of human brutality. Um, and saying like in, in Thomas Atkins book, I know that he, he kind of expounds on this idea of saying that the, the police force or rather the, the American government is asking the police not to lose control, not to exercise like this brutality that is fundamental to humanity. Um, he doesn't say that to like excuse police brutality, of, of course, but but to like point out some sort of fundamental flaw in, in, in the police force and, and what our society has, has become to ask them for. Um, obviously, like from the vantage point of 2021, the larger, points, the larger problem has just been a, a militarization and um, that human brutality has become uh, a feature, not a bug, right? Yeah, I, I think he, he also says um, uh, somewhere very interestingly that in every institution um, the authority figures are going to use the authority that they are legalized to use, right? Mm -hmm. um, so whether it is the supervisor in high school who has to reprimand a student and give them detention and be incredibly forceful to the point of almost bullying the student, they'll do it because they have the authority. And so if you have a police force and, and they have guns, and in fact, like that wonderful scene in uh, Law and Order reveals, I mean, here's this young kid who's being interviewed for a police job. And, you know, he's freshly shaven, <laughs> wearing a nice button down sh shirt. And, you know, and he's asked, why do you want to be a policeman? And eventually he says, you know, to help people and stuff. And then he's asked, well, could you use a gun if you had to? What would you say is your interest in police work? Why the hell do you want to be a police officer? What do you say? What have you thought about? 
Why did you go apply? What started you? I don't know. I guess I've always sort of wanted to be one. What for? The glory of it, you mean? No. I don't, just for... Is there always helping people and everything? And, uh, helping others, then? Yes. Could you shoot someone if you had to? I don't even know. Well, I suppose you ought to think about that for a moment, mm -hmm. all right? <laughs> Talk about it just a little bit. Under what conditions do you think that you might be able to handle a gun and shoot someone? Right. right. I mean, if that's, that's how the interview process is, and it's all about using that gun, then, mm -hmm. then the cops will use the gun, right? Um, mm -hmm. so, yeah. So. I, think, I think something that that scene in particular brings up for me that, you know, I think we might say to each other in conversation, but seems to be largely absent in the public discourse around policing, at least the mainstream discourse, is kind of like, the type of person who self-selects to be a police officer. And like, you know, this is a guy who can barely muster like the sort of platitude correct response of like wanting to help people, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the interviewer has to do it for him. And I think the subtext to that is really like, you know, I'm the type of guy who wants to boss people around and maybe crack some heads. Um, and I think, you know, this is um, a, a less didactic film than the elements uh, you were talking about in the previous films, Melita. But there, there is a sense to me, and, you know, this is the whole Rorschach test thing, but of, of Weissman sort of, you know, giving everyone enough, enough rope to hang themselves, or at least on, a, on an institutional basis to say, you know, just kind of look how fundamentally flawed um, this whole institution is um that that was my sense of that scene i think yeah but you know as much as he gives um the rope for someone to hang themselves and a few jump to that opportunity right like the vice squad uh choking that young sex worker the, he also there's also a rope there for the police to redeem themselves mm -hmm. and there are a few who do you know um so so I think what Wiseman really does, I mean, the two examples being the guy who takes care of that hapless toddler. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, he's, this guy has never obviously taken care of a baby in his life, doesn't know what the first <laughs> thing to do with it. I've never seen this baby before. No, sir. What's your name? She can't talk. I don't think she can talk. She can talk. She can talk. Isn't that something? Isn't that awful? Why don't you come with me? We'll take it down. Then we can find your mommy, okay? Isn't that a shame? Poor thing she is. Isn't that a shame? Isn't that a shame? She gonna cry. Where does mama live? Tell me where mama lives and take you home. And here's this little thing bawling and, uh, you know, he's supposed to babysit this baby for an afternoon. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, but that kind, of, uh, that kind of goodness you see coming out or whatever, just rising to the occasion and doing the right thing. Or the cat cops, you know, helping that other woman find her purse in the middle of this rainstorm. I mean, there, there are people who do good things as well. 
uh, I think I think the point that Wiseman's film makes actually, Alan, is that the cops are not designed to do all the very many things that we see them do in the film. Right, right. You know? I mean, yeah. that's what I, that, that was what my biggest takeaway was. I mean, mm -hmm. they're just supposed to take care of all these very many things. And that, that's what's really messed up with, with society and the way policing is structured and law and order is structured. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And I think the rub to hang themselves is more just kind of on a on an institutional level, um, not necessarily individual, where, you know, um, exactly what you're saying, even even those two examples um, where some might say, you know, they're doing good things, they they kind of seem to me relatively benign. You know, they find the missing purse, but it's it's empty, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they... It's such you know. a good metaphor for I, I think the I think that's like one of the films like central metaphors like they will be able to help you and it will be empty like they will get yeah. you back exactly what you asked for it might not have what you actually need in it but they will get it. <laughs> they'll do they'll do the like police version of of what you want and like the the scene with the child too you know like you said he's this is probably his first time. He's he's completely ill-equipped to comfort. Like, where this, what what's your address? <laughs> yeah, sobbing child who's like you know being traumatized <laughs> in in real time, and like um, yeah. So so why why is it that the same people who are out there choking sex workers and like banging people's heads against hoods, why are they the ones tasked with you know babysitting a, a lost child? and um you know some domestic violence disputes that that's sort of the um i was reading a piece by barry grant um and he was referencing a circular structure to this film mm -hmm. with the two domestic violence scenes um and and both kind of um referencing this the cyclical nature of the work and that there's no beginning or end to this you know it it, it is what it is and it's just always happening but also just sort of the inherent uh, inefficacy of police to just say, you know, there's nothing really we can do here. Um, you know, I hope, hope you guys work it out more or less. Yeah. Yeah. Mamber also pointed out that sort of like bookended um, structure and, and Wiseman uh, has some good quotes scattered around about um, uh, this idea of like, at the end, this end scene. So they're bookended with these domestic disputes. And uh, in both situations, cops are just there and basically deferring because they aren't able to resolve these situations. And the ending scene, I would kind of forgotten about how devastating this ending scene is um, because you have this man who is like kicked out of his home and um, unable to see his child as much as he would like to and then his wife is is uh there with like uh who has taken a, a new man and the guy doesn't know who this is and uh all the cops know what to do is say like you need to find a lawyer you need to prosecute let me tell okay. you if you want your child you go down and you get a hold of your lawyer and you start divorce proceedings or something against your wife and see if you can get custody of this child Otherwise, if you come back here, we're going to have to put you people in jail for disturbing the peace. Okay, now, it's a civil case, and we don't want in it. 
And that's the best way to handle it. Contact your lawyer. And if you want to file against her, then file. Well, look, yesterday... Well, well, you can talk to us all day, partner, but she's going to keep that kid as far as I'm well, concerned, well, and there's nothing well, you're going to well, do about it. Well, what I want to tell you, I mean, what I'm telling you, okay, she's upstairs peeping out the window. Then this boy, this boy was upstairs too, and I don't know him. Well, look, look, partner, you can tell us about this if you want to, but it's not going to make any difference. We can't do anything about it. This and, and, or get a divorce, like file for a divorce, you know, and go through the, the court proceedings. And that's just not really something that this man can do because he doesn't have the finances to do it. And um, Wiseman says that hopefully you can like see this scene and identify with the husband who's like rejected. You can identify with the wife who probably has her own, you know, um, point of view of the whole situation. Like we don't know their backstory, but um, doesn't want to see him for, for whatever reason. That's probably fair. And then you have the child who's like this collateral damage. And then you have the cop who doesn't know what to do, doesn't have any answers. And you just see this de dejected like face of this husband who's just lost in the system. And, and Lita, as you said in your article that he talks about how he hasn't been on the wrong side of the law. And this is just like criminalizing him and he just runs away. And as uh, Wiseman points out, he's running to the beginning of the film and it just like starts all over again, basically. And uh, the other interesting way he bookends domestic disputes he also, the more I see this film, I realize the film is also about the neglect of children, you know. So they're domestic disputes, there's the broken marriage, there's the broken home, and children are completely left to fend for themselves. So all this didn't get into that short article, but it's, going, it's there in the bigger chapter. So, you know, the first scene of the film is, of course, a police lineup, but the second and the third scenes of the film are both about child abuse. Um, in the second scene, there's a man who who's charged with battering and sexually abusing a boy. And the man says, uh, when he's questioned by the cop, he says, well, this happened to him before he came home, mm -hmm. which means this, they're living in the same home. So this man is obviously the mother's boyfriend, you know. Uh, and the third scene in the film is about now a girl, a young girl who's being sexually abused by an older man. And there, there's this kind of real mafioso, you know, Italian mafia guy, who's her uncle, the little girl's uncle, who says, well, tells the cops, well, if you don't take care of the scum, I will, and you, there'll be nothing left of him. So again, suggesting that the abuser there is part of this new family unit, you know, the, the, the mother's boyfriend or whatever, husband. So, so, and then you see that missing toddler at the end of the film, right? Mm -hmm. This little girl who's given over to the cop. And then in the last scene, again, this child is in the mother's arms. The father can't see her. Uh, there's a whole thread. Um, uh, there's also that one scene where the cop drives into a, a black area and there are all these kids who crowd around the window. I don't know if you remember that. And he's trying to get inf information about one kid. And there's a kid who's just holding his little sister in his arms and he's barely reaching the window. You know, <laughs> you know a kid named George Reed, Reed that lives over here on Mount Dog? Who? George Reed. George Reed. Mm hmm. Well, she's a teenager. Teenager? I don't know. Well, I don't know George. He doesn't hang around over here, though, does he? Mm hmm. Okay. Is it kind of light? I don't know. 
What'd he do? What'd he do? He didn't do anything. I just want to know if you know him. I love one of George Green. He ran off from home. He did? Mm-hmm. I just want to know if he's going with any of these girls over here. Going what? I just wondered if you knew him. I thought maybe he had a girlfriend lived over here. Girlfriend? You got yeah, he's yeah, got my a girlfriend. Well, she's up. Wait a minute. Where's her mama at? In the house. Mm. She's one years old. That's my sister. That's your sister. She's one year and then the cop asks about another another kid and the kid says oh the mother's a nutter she's always going getting you know going off somewhere so you know i think there's this amazing way in which without words in this film you know Wiseman does paint a picture of a society that's really at the point of collapse uh, in different levels and i mean then you then you of course think about it like how are the cops going to deal with any of this i mean they're just totally ill-equipped to handle this stuff. Where are the protective agencies? I mean, surely the court, you know, get yourself a lawyer is hardly a solution when this guy has no money, right? It's like saying, go talk to your accountant and go get a lawyer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe a, a perpetual 50 year <laughs> society collapse. Um, yeah, and that that's another thing. It just seems remarkably, um, modern i guess the problems presented in the film uh un unchanged kind of static you know this as your article um you know references these these are all the same conversations we're still having um which one, is interesting yeah to, sorry to to interrupt oh, you but it. but it's interesting because um i guess i was thinking about this in terms of like um when i was reading members uh thoughts about this film particularly um and how it, it like back in 1970, like pointing out that unlike the other CV directors, this is just devoid of like a headline context, right? This is just a guy who went to Kansas City in the summer to make a movie about the police. Um, this isn't about like a concert uh, that the Rolling Stones were playing that something happened at or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't about um, a specific primary um, event, but, um, what that does is makes it able, it, it makes us able to talk about it now. Like, so you can imagine like very easily like documentaries being made about like Ferguson or like this past summer, like, yeah. and, and you kind of see like the artistry of somebody like Wiseman being able to make something that is extendable and is sort of like timeless, I guess, for lack of a better word, because these, these, these issues are always there and you don't need to look at like the, uh, you know, they're below the surface all the time. And, and there's something more special about that than just being like, and look at this flashpoint. And right. that's all we need. Like that only goes so far. Yeah, I think sometimes it's really frustrating in a Wiseman film because you don't know where you are and you don't know where this place is or you don't know who these people are, you know. Uh, but I think the very fact that he will not give you that information, that he absolutely refuses to locate you. At least here we know we are in Kansas because the because their cars tell us, say, KCPD, right? <laughs> so it's not Wiseman, it's the police cars that's telling us where we are. But uh, but, you know, uh, the very fact that we never know where we are uh, makes the films timeless, I think. Mm -hmm. um, because you, you do feel that this could be 
relevant just about anywhere, perhaps well, many parts of the uh, world and at various points of time. And so, you know, when you look at this film now, I think we have this feeling, oh my God, you know, nothing has changed, right? Though, of course, lots of things have changed, but that's the overweening feeling you're left with, that, oh my God, you know, nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. And I think he makes that, he allows that to happen. And that's so important. Um, speaking of the, the cars, um, you were just mentioning that, that signal where we are, there are these scenes that sort of punctuate the film throughout, uh, you know, something many of us may have seen in real life, just walking or driving around at two police cars parked next to each other with the officers, you know, having a conversation between them. And um, relative to, I guess, later Weisman films, I think something that's pretty striking about Law and Order is it's almost entirely um, documenting the interaction between the institution and the public and, and less so sort of the inner workings of like institutional operators with each other. You know, there, there's very little of, of like, you know, uh, meetings or, or, you know, scenes with the uh, higher ups talking to subordinates. There's, there's some of it, but not a ton. Um, but there are these scenes of, of the police talking to each other in the cars. And I'm curious your take of, of those and, and how Weissman's using um, those scenes throughout the film. So um, I found that very interesting because my sense of Wiseman's films, you know, the, their structure is always that they are, I call, I call them personally building blocks in, in the book. Um, I know Bill Nichols has called them the mosaic structure, but in a mosaic, you know, you sort of build around something. It's, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Wiseman does. I think it's like a block and a block and a block and a block. And it's very architectural. It's very structural. And then there's maybe a block over it. So I look at them as building blocks. And however, in this, in this particular film, I see that he has devoted four scenes to the Howard Gilbert story. And that's the black kid. Yeah. You know, they arrest, right? And you might, uh, on a first viewing, think there's just one scene because that scene is so powerful you mm -hmm. know, when, when they arrest him. But there are actually four scenes, and, uh, and the four scenes all add something tremendous to that story. So the first scene is the arrest, which we see, and we can talk about that later because it's actually a fascinating scene because the tensions in that scene are entirely black towards black. Not mm. what would one, not what one, one would expect. It's not black to the policeman until a certain point in the in the scene. But in the initially, it's all black to black, right? Towards black, to, towards the black community who's turned in this kid. But we can have a longer conversation on that later. So the first scene is that arrest. But then a Wiseman does follow up, and there's a second scene in the cop station where they interrogate Howard. So that's scene number, there's another scene. And then the third scene uh, is one of the two cops is on, a f on the telephone and he's calling up the juvenile center where the new uh, people are brought in and he wants to know about Howard Gilbert's case, what's gonna happen to him. And from his response, we figure that this kid's gonna be released. And, uh, and, and, the, f and the fourth scene is this cop talking to the other cop across their car, patrol cars and him telling him that, listen, you better be looking behind your shoulder because this, guy, this kid's going to be a back on the street. Mm -hmm. And, the, and mm -hmm. the other cop says, well, 
what does it take? You know, here's a kid who's stolen a car, has no driving license, hits two cars, threatens to kill everyone, including cops, and, and they still can't keep him in, you know? So, so when I saw the film again and again and again, I realized, I mean, he really has built a, built a story and a scene um, far more so than he does in many films. And obviously there's a reason for this, right? Uh, it's not, nothing with Wiseman is accidental. So he does want us to get a real sense of this kid and what his options are. And he wants us to get a real sense of uh, what the cops are up, up against with this kid threatening to kill them once he's out. And he tells them I'm going to be out because I'm a juvie, right? So, so I think, you know, these, uh, I don't know if I answered your question, Alan, but I think these cops, you know, the cops talking to one another, sometimes it's a punctuation. Uh, but the things they talk about are do add to the whole, uh, to the whole story and the, the the various nuances of it. And another scene, they're talking about price, uh, what they get paid in Kansas, versus what they would get paid if they, they were in LA, LA yeah. where the where the uh, where the salaries are much higher, uh, but the cost of living is higher. So you know you do get a sense of what they talk about, what are their concerns, and uh, how they uh, are with one another. I think that the inner. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say the 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 interwoven um, uh, building narrative of the Howard Gilbert story. It's interesting to uh, like we've been talking on the last couple episodes about um, how docility works in Wiseman's film films uh, as like an ongoing look at institutions and 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 how people are supposed to react to the state or or what the state has put in place to uh, enact docility. And it is interesting to see like this ongoing thing of like, okay, we got him, now he's in prison or jail, and now he might get out. And the idea, like when we see these cops talking, the plan is not reform. Like it's, it's to like keep him down. You know, it's, it's, there is, that's never a question of like empathy and um, whatever reform would look like it really is just like trying to, what's it going to take for him to be docile, right? It's like, what must be done in the moment to solve a problem? Mm -hmm. So in the yeah. moment, somebody is called in and said, there's this guy, he just bashed my car up. So at that moment, you have to restrain this kid, this kid who's being, you know, very belligerent. You have to restrain him. You have to handcuff him. Uh, you have to get him off. Then then what do you do with you send him to juvie and then of course the juvie is not going to keep him then hell how are we going to deal with this guy so it's all it's all very temporary measures there there are no long-term solutions and uh, the long-term solutions seem to be that if a couple's having a problem well they'd better get their lawyer and go to court um so how is that a how is that a solution for anything you know I, I, so there's that whole cyclical thing right Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty, depre pretty depressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When when I watched this on this most recent rewatch, I, I I felt that, and I I just after it was over, I just turned it off. I went to bed, and I fell asleep for like three hours. This is the middle of a Saturday. Um, but... <laughs> that sounds. <laughs> yeah. it, it would it's... have been worse if it said I was up all night and I couldn't sleep at all. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that like this time I had I had seen 
uh, in between my first uh, watch of this and this most recent one, I have watched Domestic Violence um, and Wiseman's 2001 film, I believe. Um, and it's really interesting to think about them. I mean, I think that Law and Order anticipates or just like is like part of a uh, system of networks that we get to see in upcoming films like Hospital and Welfare, like those two films, especially like watching them back to back, it's like the same film, right? Like where you're getting like people having conversations basically with each other um, or systems and Law and Order is like, we get to see um, them basically in need of those services and all of them, when you watch them in close proximity, you just see these, these systems that are just like broken, right? Um, and then domestic violence seems to me almost like this, like obviously there are domestic calls, right? Where you get to see the cops coming in to the home and they are very similar to the ones you see here where the cops are basically like asked to do things that they're not trained in or like the, res the resolution is like, okay, do you promise to sleep on this couch tonight? Like after I leave, like yeah. that's not a solution, right? Um, but like, and then eventually like the majority of the film, you're getting to see this actual uh, shelter, which is a great solution in a sense. I mean, there isn't a full-time solution of like escape for a lot of these women, um, but there is like, you get to see this solace where they are in a safe place and getting to talk to each other. Um, which is really nice uh, addendum to something like this. But um, Nalita, you, you, you had a good quote in your article about the inadequacy of social systems making justice an elusive goal. Um, and the thing that you pointed out as like the connective tissue is poverty and homelessness. Um, and, you know, just as in 1968 as in today, social justice just isn't gonna happen in, 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 until the, the state creates those systems. Um, you call them like life-sustaining opportunities that provide care and support. Um, and you punctuated this idea of, of poverty and homelessness as the root of it with this beautiful Bagsby scene that I had forgotten about and um, where uh, the woman, Miss Grand, uh, the cops find this this alcoholic um man like drunk on the ground and asking this woman for his identification and uh it turns out that he's bagsby you know him i think so yeah that's, I, I... that's geronimo geronimo right. mm -mm, that is not he used to he's actually what is his name bagsby that's bagsby I thought it was Geronimo by his hair. Well, that's, Geronimo is, is lighter than that. He's more Indian, you know. That's uh, Bagsby. Not... That's who that is. Bagsby? He used to be one of our tenants. Bagsby. I know you've seen him, uh, girl, drunk up and down the street and just holding and falling down on the sidewalk. I know where he stays. Oh, yeah. Called me Miss Grant all the time. Hey, that's Bagsby. No telling to where he's staying. That's yeah. who that is. That's Bagsby. I'm, I went by his hair. I thought, you know Geronimo, the Indian-looking man. No, he ain't never stayed over here. Of course he could have. He stayed all over town. And it's one of those moments that is 
it, it really shows Wiseman like having an ear for not only like local vernacular, but also being able to imbue um, colloquialisms to be like these existential problems that he's trying to show in the film. You know, they, they like take him away um, in a wagon or, or an ambulance or, or, or something. And she just like, you overhear her saying like, that you know he doesn't have a quarter and just like saying like what why do some people live like what is what is the aim in life and you you hear these just like things that just like ring throughout the entire film of like like you said like poverty and homelessness um that just this is this like this is not this law and order does not create any sort of justice or any sort of solution for people who are poor you know, the, uh, as you said, you said that very beautifully, Sean. I mean, he has such a fine ear and um, such a recognition for uh, the sort of the quintessential character. You know, the, I, I think some critics has, said somewhere that Wiseman is not interested in characters. He's inter interested in institutions, but I totally disagree with that. I mean, there are amazing characters peopling uh, Wiseman's films, and uh, he has a fine ear. And I was very interested to read an essay he wrote where he talks about his mother. I don't know if you all have read that essay, but his mother wanted to be an actress, Wiseman's mother, and she would, she never became an actress. But when she came home, she would be speaking and talking about all the people she'd met in the day. And he talks about how they, they, they left such, made such an impression on him, you know, these people she, the people she would mimic. And, um, and I, I sort of, when I see his films, I feel, yeah, I mean, here's somebody, you know, from Beckett and here's somebody from UNESCO, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and uh, Bagsby and Miss Grant. I mean, just think about, I mean, Bagsby, <laughs> like the bag lady, right? Like the, the bag on the street. And, uh, and, she, and the way she says, he's Bagsby, you know, and then she says that he calls her Miss Grant. So, um, what an amazing and Geronimo, situation. like, oh, I thought that was Geronimo. <laughs> <laughs> because of his hair, but yeah. he's Bagsby. And, and then you see Miss Grant's, uh, you know, her lined face, you know, that the wisdom on that face. And mm -hmm. I don't know, it's like he's, he's like, this could be a fiction film, right? Beautifully written, cast, enacted. Um, so I, I find those mo moments in his films and they're, there in so many of his films that are just completely magical. You can't believe he, how he's, how this just happened and they caught it so beautifully. So yeah, that is a very, um, it's a very uh, sad scene because uh, she doesn't say it completely unsympathetically, you know? Mm -hmm. um, she says it with, the, uh, with, with a great deal of empathy, but at the same time, like, what's the point of living like this? You know, it's like, there's no point living this way. You know, she's very clear about that because she clearly is a very dignified, old lady you know with a lot of pride self-pride mm -hmm. um so yeah that was um, i mean that that scene is nowhere at the end of the film but but i i put it at the end in the article because i think it said so much to me um yeah also also in a sense i think um you know i think the relationship i think we should talk about this because i found this very interesting that the relationship between black people and black people is not what I had expected in law and order. You know, there's, there are many, many gradations there. It's not like a, like a monolithic one thing. 
you know, whereas <laughs> now more and more as we get so polarized, you know, it's so much white versus black or whatever, you know, everything's very polarized. But in the film, there are many, many, you know, like, like Miss Grant can be critical of Bagsby because he's a drunk on the, on the street, you know. Um, so that's right. sort of very interesting, you know, I find that interesting. It seems, you know, as it is, large, largely wrapped up in class. Um, obviously, I think there's there's the scene uh, with the foiled stick up, um, and as you know, one of the would be robbers is being escorted out. He's turning to the the black store owner and being like, you know, you're a white man, basically, mm-hmm. um, because uh, there's some transgression here that's happened. Of, you know, you're uh, uh, obviously of a higher uh, class status than me by owning this shop and you're willing to impose the power of the state upon me for you know uh, your your perception that I was about to rob you um, and and then the, the scene you were talking about earlier with the arrest um, and and so much uh, vitriol being and threats being thrown around um, about um, you know calling the cops and that that really seems to be the thing and is is calling the cops is this uh transcendent transgression that you know you forfeit your blackness and essentially become a white person um and and there's that great scene too um earlier on in the film of the white woman who was arrested in the station we don't get any context for her but you know she's just so uh, offended. I told these people all I know and I don't appreciate it. I haven't signed anything. I just got here. But I'm not accustomed to being thrown in a paddy wagon because I didn't want to leave my joint unlocked till the bartender got there. I don't know, Simon. I was thrown in a paddy wagon bodily by a Negro policeman and a, a white policeman bodily thrown in a police in a paddy wagon. Now, would you come down here and help me, please? Because I really don't appreciate it. And sit there for 20 minutes and freeze. Uh, This is, I'm not a criminal. And to be treated this way, I'm not used to it. And it isn't necessary. I am trying to get along with them. Jesus Christ, what are you going to do, man? It's their way or none. Then... I'm white. Why am I in this situation? Essentially, is is the subject. Yeah, yeah, the paddy wagon. What she's saying. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But you know, the that scene with the white lady is also important because um, you see how race is ingrained. Mm-hmm. I mean, it always fascinates me that she doesn't just say, "I was bodily thrown into a paddy wagon by two policemen." What she has to say is, "I was bodily thrown into a." paddy wagon by a negro policeman and a white policeman right you know i mean that is not an innocuous statement right uh, she is she is really upset because one of the policemen was black why else you know so the whole framing of that sentence i mean that's why with any wiseman film it actually i have to see it many times to really understand all that it it contains because this it's so rich you know in, mm-hmm. in 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 its witnessing i mean there's so much there in the dialogue in what's said and what's not said and uh, and this was this is amazing you know it was amazing that she would put it that way and then mm-hmm. sound so affronted she's uh, she seems equally affronted by the fact that she's arrested but also in the manner at which she's arrested right 
which included a black policeman. So just really, really interesting stuff. So then I see, my God, it's just ingrained in her. It's ingrained in her, this race thing. You know, she, she, she can't get, get over that at all. And that the, and the, be, be black policeman, sorry. Yeah, and, and the implication that the police aren't here to, to treat white people like that, just generally. Um, that they're here for the non-white people in our neighborhood to, to like keep our streets safe. I think um, it's interesting like to look at law and order as just on a textual level of as we've been taking a look at how his structure has or, or like his form has has developed like this is still an 80 minute movie um, and it it kind of like took me aback in the first like five minutes we get like I don't know five or six different scenes and like how we're just not used to that in contemporary Wiseman films like we get this like therapist office scene or, or whatever it is where the guy's asking the, the white cop like uh, why he wants to be a cop and if he would shoot somebody like I was like I could watch that for five minutes and in a contemporary Wiseman film I would be watching this scene for five minutes um, and it's also uh, reminded me of something we talked about on the, the last episode of uh, member saying that you can see him getting access to these institutions and then like being like ooh, and then I got access to like this closed door like part of this institution and being able to like get into that uh, you see that a lot too and um, uh, it it also reminds me of the sergeant or whoever it is like telling them about language um, like talking to the police force about what language not to use watch your language out there when you're talking to people don't use any of these little innuendos about what type of person they are boss Buddy, bub, Hoosier. <laughs> People take offense at this. It's a lot, just as easy to call them young man or son. Or... They take offense to that. Son. And I, uh, I know you brought that up for my benefit, Pete, just like I, you did that spiel yesterday when my brother was here. I've heard so many of them. Uh, it's not only you, Willie. If you want to uh, take offense at it, you I go didn't, right uh, ahead. I didn't say anything to that well, person. Let's don't him to take offense. I didn't intend for him to. Let's not argue about it, roll call. Well, you're the one that's already up. and you want to air it out, let's air it out together. Okay, no, it's see me uh, after the roll. advice is good, and it's uh, made to everyone. See me after Every roll one roll. of us are uh, careless in that. i tell you one reason that we are careless is that we get accustomed to talking to each other in, in that manner. Uh, and of course nobody takes offense as long as we're friends, but when we get out there among strangers and you use a term that uh, if he, of course, he wants to take offense about something. Uh, he, uh, usually you've got him wrong and he's looking for something else to put the blame on for what he did. And so if you come up with any term, terminology that he can construe as being offensive, even though 10 minutes ago somebody else might have said it and it didn't mean a thing, then he's gonna make a, get a beef on you. Okay, There's nobody can take offense at Mr. or Sir or Lady. I've had him do it. There's nobody. I've had him do it. Uh, you won't ever get in no trouble for it. Uh, you get in trouble using Hoss, so I'll tell you that. Okay, um, And it's, it's just like interesting that we don't see a whole lot of those interactions. Like the majority of this film is about um, people, and the institution interacting. 
and not so much about like, like Arlen, you were saying like meetings of like how the police force is funded or what they're doing with their funds or, or just various types of meetings. But I don't know, what do we think of like this, this um, meeting where they're like debating what is going to be the language that's used and what's going to um, make some people mad? So uh, I was interested to find out that, you know, well, usually Wiseman, when he shoots in an institution, he shoots for four weeks or six weeks and then he's out mm -hmm. and he never goes back in there. But this was one instance where he actually, he and Brain actually went back mm -hmm. because he wanted a footage of meetings at the precinct, mm. which they hadn't got. So knowing, knowing that later on, I went back and looked at these two scenes, you know, they're two large scenes. Uh, well, they're not long, but a, a scene where they're, they're more than two people in a room. Yeah. And so those two scenes, obviously, they're there for a very good reason, um, because that's what he chose to include in the film. So in one, there's a roll call. So it's just a simple roll call. And, uh, and so I was wondering, okay, so what, what's the purpose of the scene? And then you realize, of course, I mean, at least this is what I draw from it. Everybody will draw something different from a Wiseman film. But what I drew from it was that, well, there are no black cops. You know? <laughs> um, uh, the, everybody is a white guy there. And there's just like one guy in, a, in the corner who is a person of color, could be a person of color. So, um, so for me, at least, that's how it spoke to me very powerfully, that here they are policing black neighborhoods but in all in the film I just see two black cops you know um, mm -hmm. and that's it um, and the second uh, scene is about mind your manners and the p you know watch your p's and q's and don't use words like horse and, and boss and buddy say sir or son and then I in the first I said like okay so there is a sense of decorum mm -hmm. you have to be decorous uh, but actually, it is yet another instance, Sean, of what you had said earlier, which is a very nice quote, actually. I'm, I'm going to, I'll get your permission and quote you on that, <laughs> if I may, about how, you know, the police find the, uh, the purse, they do, but the purse is empty, right? There's nothing inside. And I think this is yet another example of that, that on the surface, you're very polite and you say, sir and son. But meanwhile, you're like grabbing somebody's arm and wrenching it apart and handcuffing them and shoving their head down on a hood mm -hmm. you know so it's it's the facade is one of gentility but beneath it it's like whatever you know whatever right, right, rules, right. brute rules and the the guy actually he when he's talking about watch your language and your p's and q's the guy who has obviously been reprimanded in a previous scene we we, we don't we're not shown that but there's a guy who speaks up Mm -hmm. And he says, I, I know you're talking about me. His name is Wally, I think. He says, I know you're talking about me. I just wanted to know that I'm not going to be bowing and scraping to anyone. Right? So it is, it is a scene where there's a supervisor keeping control. But I think overall it's saying, like, you have to, on the surface, not give offense. But what Wiseman says is everything else happens beneath that. In a sense of you get with the with this uh, this officer sticking up for himself, like you get this added texture of like pride and authority. Like there's a there's a pride in having this authority. It, like which goes back to the whole like we're not here to help people. Like we're here to stand above them, and um, we can condescend to them if we want. Um, 
to do otherwise, like to, to go out of my way to not condescend would be to like give in to people. Um, I think, I think there's subtext to that too. That's like, you know, the limits of institutional control and reform on individual actors, right? Cause like, no matter how much, you know, restructuring or training, it's like at the end of the day, and I think this is, this is largely Weissman's point is these are just people out there who have been, you know, given a gun and, and large uh, kind of carte blanche to, you know, keep the peace or, or preserve law and order, whatever that may mean to that particular officer. Um, it's, it's really kind of frightening, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, that's why I, I was using, I was looking at language very closely in the analysis, you know, because I think language is very important in the film. So both this scene about what you can or cannot call people and then compare that with the scene where the black guy has read the Miranda rights, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, on the, it's all very polite on the surface, you know, it's like sir and everything, you know, he's read his Miranda rights, but the kind of insidious manner yeah. in which they're trying to get him to say the wrong thing, right? That's fascinating, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's the actual practice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you just, the guy has to really be on his toes and mm-hmm. just not slip up at all. Otherwise, you know, his, <laughs> who knows what will happen to him. So it's yeah. very, very interesting, the use of language. Which, I mean, like, and to, I, I don't know, the elephant in the room, but like Law and Order, like the title itself is <laughs> is a very like uh, specific title uh, that we learn uh, towards the end of the film. Uh, with the Nixon speech that's being like broadcast and he says that we need to bring law and order. This is, um, yeah, in 1968 and in campaign, Nixon's campaign. And um, yeah, like before you see that, you think, or at least I think, you know, just, yeah, that's what we call police is law and order. Um, and then you just see it tied to this and it gives it this context, or at least like now, because I wasn't alive in 1968, being like, oh yes, this is, he's situating this in a specific moment in America. Um, and the type of political rhetoric that was going on. Uh, that, that scene specifically, I, I also like just on a textual note, um, as Manuel pointed out in his most recent journal, that like it would have been easy to end on that after high school, like ending with this, this vice principal, like saying this like right. speech that just sums up the whole thing. It would have been really easy to end again on like this, this speech where he says, make America right again. Um, right. Instead, uh, thankfully, he doesn't. Um, I, I think that would have cheapened the film. Yeah. And talking about that scene and Alan, what you started the the discussion with about Wiseman's purity. Um, you know, so when I saw Law and Order and there's that Nixon speech, I obviously assumed that he had got that from archival footage. You know, I mean, some television network, right? I mean, this is obviously being broadcast, and that was my assumption. But Wiseman, in true to his, the, the purity of his method, did no such thing. That scene is in the film because they actually were there filming Nixon <laughs> while he gave the this lecture. <laughs> and uh, according to his cinematographer, they happened to film this lecture because they were following the, you know, the Kansas City Police Department. And so if Nixon arrived there to give a speech, their job was to go and patrol there and 
secure the place. And so oh, wow. they happened to be there and they shot, shot the scene. So actually, it's not non-diegetic. Oh, okay. Even that scene is not non-diegetic. It's completely <laughs> or, organic and germane to them following the KCPD around. I mean, I thought that was pretty incredible, right? Yeah. <laughs> Talking about being steadfast to a certain method. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's funny. Sean, I thought you were going uh, somewhere different when you're kind of talking about the modern context. Um, but some something that you know, that this brings up for me, um, that interrogation scene where they're trying to kind of gotcha this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the show Law and Order. And like, oh. <laughs> like, like um, you know, when that happens uh, in the show, you're like kind of rooting for these cops to find a way to to make the suspect kind of hang themselves, you know, yeah. like, like, you're like, oh, they're gonna get him. And I think it's really interesting, too. And I'm, I'm really curious, uh, Nalita, how you see this. When I, when I was talking to Sean and remembering um, my initial viewing of Law and Order, I kind of remembered it as like, this Weissman verite version of the show Cops. Um, which I think in this rewatch, you know, I had, I had less of that sense, but I think there are scenes that could very well be taken uh, in that show, you know, without mm-hmm. much, much, um, you know, uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, I think that show has been pointed out, especially in the current moment as being very harmful and destructive, um, both societally and materially to the people who appear on it. Um, I'm curious, Nalita, if you see um, any connections between that film and that series and uh, ways and differences in which they operate. I have to admit, I haven't seen much of Cops. <laughs> sure, sure. So, so I don't think I can, I can comment. But I remember when I was seeing this again and I was writing about it, I was thinking of making a murderer, you know, because I had seen that recently. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, this all those the interrogation of mm-hmm. that kid you know that and how he's ultimately framed was just so reminiscent of uh, mm-hmm. what Wiseman had documented 50 years ago um, yeah you know. yeah and what you don't get in like wise the the way that Wiseman systematically makes films is like you just don't get that pathologizing right from the filmmaker like you get these like raw scenes and and he's juxtaposing them in like you said these building blocks but without the pathologizing of the victims which is nice um in actually arlen um in um the member journal he brought up cops as like the big difference that he thought was that you you know which side the 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 program is on Mm, uh when you watch cops um and we obviously get a flip side of that like obviously if you look at the raw footage, you're going to see a lot of like this similar stuff with people being choked, people like cops talking to domestic violent uh, or domestic uh, disputes um, and whatnot. But um, yeah, cops is obviously propaganda and and wants to uh, poke fun and, and extort uh, basic citizens. Yeah. I mean, I guess Sorry, go ahead. you will uh, respond to it, you know, as... Um depending on the values that we bring to the film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, so of course, I mean, I think in, that, in the chokehold scene, I, I, I mean, I should just say that I, when, when the last year, the reason I even 
decided to write this piece is when all this stuff was happening with George Floyd, etc. Um, I didn't remember anything of Law and Order. I didn't remember the film at all. But what I did remember was the chokehold. I mm. just remembered this black woman with her, with this white large man behind her and just choking. I mean, that's what I remembered. And then I, and I knew it was a Wiseman film. And then I went and then I searched it out. And thank God for Canopy now that, you know, searching is not <laughs> so hard like it used to be. Um, and, and, but that was really all I remembered of the film, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so in that scene, of course, I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone watching that film and not being completely horrified at, at the, at these four men who are doing mm -hmm. this to this woman who's basically in her night clothes and asleep, right? I mean, I don't think there's two ways of reading that scene. Um, but if you, if you talk about the end of the film, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we feel really sorry for this young man who's not being allowed to go up and see his, be in his own apartment mm -hmm. and uh, be with his own child and his absolute perplexity that he, he's called the cops to help him resolve the situation. And instead he's told that, no, you can't go up there and it doesn't matter if she has a different man up there and she may have 500 of them. And yes, you still have to support her and your child. I mean, it, it, it is completely irrational, you know? And you, you feel for this young man and you also feel for the cop because what, the, what on earth is the cop supposed to do about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is a law and that's all he can tell him to do. So I think there, I wonder if people see both sides of the situation in a scene like that. I mean, I'd be very curious, you know. Um, I found it very like so, heartbreaking that he wants to, he's, you could tell that, that that father is also trying to say stuff that it really, he knows that the cops can't do anything about it. Like you said, like, he's just trying to like voice his frustration, like, you know, like, and there's nobody to listen to him. Uh, and it's really hard to watch. Yeah. But yeah, the, I, I had remembered the, the, the choke on the, the sex worker as well. But like, I, I, I forgot like, yeah, just how like hard it is to watch. And what I had forgotten was the stuff that comes after. Cause that's like one of the longer scenes in the film. And you just kind of remember like the climax of it, um, but they talked to her for a while, and you and you know they're like calm and and she's responsive and whatnot. But you kind of like see this this power that they hold over her after they have physically, uh, you know, made their presence known with her. Um, they're sort of like setting a precedent with her yeah. too. You know, I think it comes out that that she's kind of new at this. And they're saying like, well, if you're going to do this work, you know, expect to deal with us, you know, choking you like once a month, maybe. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, the way this is both codified and accepted as just being, you know, part of the routine um, by both parties um, is, is, again, just kind of horrifying. Yeah, I think codified is a good word to talk about the film just generally like I think it's a good look at how uh, like how the police have codified uh, um, resolutions or what you know their answers to things like yeah. it, it, it has come up through natural um, instances of, of um, 
uh, them inter intercepting citizens on their on their daily on a daily basis. And of course, this uh, this scene is followed by that other incredible character, Judy, who's the white older prostitute, mm -hmm. who is just like raw and rude and funny and raucous, and you know that that's her way of dealing with these guys because clearly you feel. Like here's this young woman who's just entering this field and here's this older woman who's seen it all, right? Mm -hmm. And she has some amazing lines, you know, like when they ask her something like, uh, so, you know, they, they ask her how much she weighs and then she says 140 pounds and then laughs. And then she says, I'm five feet, six and a half, blonde, blue eyes, and I have nothing on me except this kind of gun and an assault rifle. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a Gatling gun. Yeah. Now, I'd like to know what I'm down here for. Now, you booked me on something. Hey, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. You're down here for creating a public disturbance for screaming like you're doing right now. Oh, that's a charge? Yes. That's a good charge. That is, thank you. Now, would you step over there where you were? No, I'd like a better charge on that. Well, how about I got uh, uh, no uh, I'm my boy how are you? I uh, you got a charge. What do you want to put on? No, hell no. Maybe. No, hell no. I ain't going for this goddamn charge and you put it on. How about drunk in public also? Well, bro, you can put that on me too. Okay. How old are you now? I'm twenty-eight years old, and that ain't no goddamn good. You picked me up? What state were you born in? Uh, Missouri. What state was you born in? I was born in Missouri, but I'll never claim it again. I ain't got nothing on it. Search me. How tall are you? Five foot six and a half, blonde hair, blue eyes, and ain't got nothing on me but a Gatlin garden machine gun. How much do you weigh now? Oh, about 140 pounds. <laughs> yeah, I'd laugh. Give me another one. Yeah, Gatlin God. I didn't even know what a Gatlin. Yeah, it's just brilliant. I mean, these just brilliant lies, right? lines. And, and they're like feeling her up. Knows how to deal with They have yeah, their hands like all yeah, over her. Uh, luckily, it was a woman, yeah, who was, but she had her hand right down her blouse, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. it's, just in, it's just incredible, you know. So when you think that, um, well, when you think that black people are treated the way they are, as we see outside, outdoors, the way minorities, transgender people are treated indoors in private spaces, I mean, mm. there's no comparison, right? Um, and, I, and with that uh, sex worker scene where she's almost choked to death, I kept thinking, you know, I mean, this, people must be choked to death all the time. Yeah. If this is what you're going to do to them, and if she was asthmatic or something, she would, she would be dead. Yeah. And, uh, and no, there would be no documentation of it for 40, 50 years ago, right? There wouldn't be a police report that they choked her to death. That would be just one person who died. Well, um, yeah. The subtext of the whole movie is that they're okay doing this on camera. Uh, right. That's, it's, it's, you kind of take it for granted because, you, you know, like for a lot of us, at least in, in American audiences have watched shows like Cops and are used to this, but like... The fact that they're okay to say a lot of these things and to do something so physically violent to somebody and do it on camera and and not feel two ways about it is um it's remarkable well i think i think too it's like you know the thing um 
we've talked about in a previous episode is like people uh, who are embodying the role of the subject in a documentary almost always act in a way that they think makes them look good. So there's the sense here that the police are saying, this is nothing for us to be ashamed of, mm-hmm. um, you know? And, and I, think, I think though we can sort of make the inference that, that the camera, you know, might've saved this woman's life in this situation and, and maybe they, they held back a little, but there is that, that brief moment of recognition where one of them, you know, takes notice of the lens and they're like, oh, you know, th- these guys are here, you know, maybe we should not do the, the full mm-hmm. thing this time but i i just felt that they they, they didn't they, i don't i don't think they lessened it at all for the camera because because she's a sex worker yeah. mm. because she's a sex worker and sex workers had absolutely no rights and especially if you were a black sex worker then forget it you know it right. was, yeah. there's just no justification in this situation for using any kind of neck restraint on her. With Harold outside, you could argue yes. Right. Because he's he's fighting them off. But with her, she was you know, she's asleep in the, and then to bring pull her out and four guys, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just yeah. no reason. So I don't think they were doing anything for the camera. I mean, this is the way they habitually treat sex workers. Right. Um, and I think that's just really upsetting, you know. And then again, the use of language there. Uh, the, the, once the three guys leave and there's just that one guy with her who goes with her to the room, her room, and just looks through all her photographs and is asking her questions, and he deliberately mishears her and sexualizes everything she's saying. Right. So uh, she says something like, when, when they're talking about Judy, and she says, well, she's just teaching me all this stuff, you know, and then he says, suck? She teaches you how to suck? I mean, it's... Yeah. It's, it's, I heard, I had to listen to it again and again. It's like, am I mishearing this? Yeah. And then at one point she says jail. I, no, no, just about jail. And he says jellies. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, so misogynistic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. and you feel that, you know, this, uh, to, for someone like her to deal with all this. And then, of course, the cherry in the pie at the end is, you know, when she's fingerprinted, it's not a fingerprint. It's like the entire finger, you know, all 10 of them are just codified, stamped, codified. That's, that's what she leaves behind. Mm-hmm. And so you know they're going to call, pull her out anytime in the future, find her, do whatever they're going to do with her. Yeah. It's just really, really disturbing. And, and of course, you know, I think writing, looking at this film 50 years later is very important because very little has changed when it comes to how sex workers are treated, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the United States. Uh, so that's very really was very disturbing for me to find out actually yeah there, there's also the moment um when they're still sort of arresting her where where she's like please stop choking me and they're like we're not choking you you know i don't know what you're talking but like in real time gaslighting um the whole sequence to me was kind of a, a callback to the the shaving scene and titty cut follies just the tone of these cops kind of matching the tone of those guards just trying to, you know, just being vile people, really, and 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 egging on this person with with absolute no power over whom they have pretty much complete authority. That, it's interesting. I think it was in a Barry Grant article or book somewhere where he brings up that the uh, Titicut Follies, um, the guy, you know, that that he crosscuts. 
and how he was taken better care of in death than in life. Mm -hmm. And that really does ring like through this film as well. Uh, Like you can just imagine, especially like a sex worker like this, just like getting more respect as a dead citizen than somebody who's alive um, acting the way that that she is in a way that, that they don't approve of. And two, also the some some of the unspoken context that is is, you know, the rate at which um, police officers assault sex workers with impunity, and like you know that's thankfully not something we're shown. Um, but um, you know, part of that codification where it's like you know kind of expect to deal with us once a month. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of the uh, one of the unspoken parts of that. There is a reference she makes to one of them when they fall. She says, one of you, uh, you know, one of you was naked and was telling me to come into bed. And mm-hmm. I'm, right, not yeah. very clear, yeah. I'm not very clear on that. And so I didn't write about it. But she does say that, right? Mm-hmm. So one doesn't really know what exactly preceded the scene. We know there right. was a bellboy involved. There was a client. But there was also one of them who was probably posing to be a client if i'm not mistaken you know he was yeah. probably uh, that's how they, tra- they trapped her probably you right know, like one of them was trying to pose as a client i mean it's just totally unfair tactics so i was really delighted to read very recently that at least in new york um consensual sex between any two people is not going to be criminalized even if there's an exchange of money <laughs> so i mean Finally, this year, I mean, 2021, I can't even believe that until now it was criminalized, but it's not going to be now. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- that just goes to show, I mean, it, what about the rest of the country, you know? So. Right. Um, well, I think we can wrap up uh, our discussion of, of Law and Order, um, unless people have uh, more things to add. Um, but Nalita, did you say you have an article coming out on Essane? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully, yes, hopefully. yes. Okay. That was a tough film, my God. I mean, that was one film that I just couldn't understand for the longest time. And so I said, I should, I should first write a chapter on that film and make sure I understand it before I can do a whole book. But I think well, I've understood it now. I hope what that... Do you, um, what do you, well, we shouldn't talk about Essene. <laughs> I, I, I hope that your article comes out so we can talk about it by the time we, we, uh, we podcast about it and, and uh, read through it. Um, I look forward to that. Uh, and, we'll, and we'll definitely guide people towards that when that comes out. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, this was this was great. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Thanks very much. Enjoyed chatting with you both. It's such Bye. a pleasure. Appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, people can reach us at wisemanpodcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, until next episode, this is Wiseman Podcast. Thank you. Hey. Yeah, information on a strong arm, 1622. 31, Euclid, 2344. 31 Garfield. 31 Garfield with 2342. Reported a disturbance. 140 arm with a knife. Reported a female on the 24th, 2915 forced. Call received from the manager of the department's 2915 forced. She said she'd locked the party out. 1447
Delta, I buy them nine 